Good morning and happy Easter, Grace Chapel family and friends. Uh, the Lord's risen. The power of death has been conquered. Jesus' death has covered our sins. His resurrection proves it's all been taken care of, that God is satisfied. We really have reason to be joyful and hopeful this Easter Sunday morning if we've entrusted ourselves to Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. This morning for Easter Sunday, I'd like to look at two main scripture passages today. The first will be in 1 Samuel chapter 31 as we kind of wrap up our studies in that book. And the second passage will be found in Luke's Gospel chapter 24. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 31. That's 1 Samuel chapter 31. And as you're turning there, listen to these hopeful words that David wrote from Psalm 30. Sing to the Lord, you his saints of his, praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. King Saul's life ends tragically in hopeless despair. Saul reaps at the end of his life what he sowed most of his life during his life. But God made promises to King David, so even in a very sad ending to Saul's life, there's hope because God's anointed one, David, is still alive and ready to serve him. And he's a picture of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord. Just before we consider uh, the joy of Easter morning, what I'd like to do this morning is focus on the weeping of the night that 1 Samuel chapter 31 brings to our attention. But before we do that, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, today, I ask that you would fill us, all your people around the globe, with hope. In the middle of sadness, in the middle of despair, even in weeping in the cemetery, Lord God, help your people to cling to the joy of eternal life that is ours, that you've purchased for us in the cross. Lord Jesus, you've conquered death, and today we celebrate that. Fill our hearts with courage and hopeful joy today, and from this day forward, as we honor you and worship you, our risen Savior, and we pray this in your great and glorious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 31. Follow along as I read the whole chapter. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Milkashua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul had, and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and they fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off their heads and stripped off his armor and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. 
They put his armor in the temple of the Asterisks and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the people of Jabesh Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Wow. First Samuel really ends sadly. And death makes life sad. It's an unwanted intruder. It's a curse. It's a powerful opponent that we human beings on our own cannot defeat. In his poem, Thanatosis, William Bryant wrote these words. All that tread the globe are but a handful to the tribes that slumber in its bosom. <laughs> That's not a very happy thought, is it? Bryant makes us contemplate the very fact that all of us are going to be joining the many, many thousands and millions and billions of people who have gone before us. Our bodies are going to join them in the grave in a cemetery. Saul's death is recorded for us by God in this chapter for our good. There really is a glimmer of hope in this very sad chapter. And it's because David, God's anointed king, is still alive, still believing, still ready to serve and follow God. So Saul's life ends in sadness. And there's nothing but sad and bad news here. G. Campbell Morgan wrote that this, this chapter's written and draped in sackcloth and covered in ashes. What's all the sad news? Well, we read it already, but just to take a quick look again to remind us, the whole army of Israel's fleeing before the Philistines in defeat. Saul's three sons are all killed in battle, and Saul probably knew this. Maybe even he might have even seen it happen. And I'm really sad, too, because Jonathan, he's a beloved character. He loved God, and he was faithful, and he was faithful to David, and, and he trusted God's plan. He was killed too. And then Saul takes his own life. He had no good options. He was cornered and in distress. Saul's armor bearer dies and all his close bodyguards and, and uh, important strong men died with him. And, and you know, it's interesting to think, but David was part of that group. And, but God protected him from this disaster. In verse 7, we read that the Israelites that were there, that living in the land close to the battle, had to flee. They became refugees. They had to leave and run from their homes out of fear and for their own safety. And the Philistines occupied the land and took over and, and robbed and plundered the promised land right there. And then there's the defamation of Saul's body. You know, Saul was right when he wanted to his armor bearer to kill him because the Philistines would have treated him very badly. Look what they did with his dead body. But especially, there was, and sadly, there was a defamation of the Lord's name. The Philistines were gloating. Israel, Jehovah, your God is weak, and the king that he appointed and anointed, he's dead. He can't stand before our armies and our kings and our gods. It's interesting, isn't it, how quickly they forgot the plagues that the Ark of God's Covenant brought to them back earlier, several years earlier. And you read about that in chapters 5 and 6. 
There is one bright spot in this whole sad chapter of 1 Samuel 31, and that's the men, the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead, who remembered that Saul, in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, his first great act as king, he delivered them from the Ammonites. And they never forgot that. So they rescued Saul's body and his son's bodies, and they honored them by giving them a proper burial. That's the one bright spot of the chapter. So what does God want us to learn from this chapter? Well, there's a few things as we think about the weeping of the night, the sadness that death brings into our lives. Saul was appointed by God to deliver Israel from the Philistines, and he started out so well. We're reminded of that because of the valiant act of the men of Jabesh-Gilead. But we see through this, this book that Saul turned away from the Lord. He focused his endeavors in keeping his own kingdom, not being a good steward of God's kingdom or God's people, but he began to be selfish and put himself first, and he was jealous for a kingdom to keep it that wasn't his own, and he was faithless, and there was no fear of God. He tried to gain the world, and he lost his soul. And instead of delivering God's people, Saul led them to defeat because of his bad choices, because of his disobedience, because of his unbelief and faithlessness. Saul died by his own hand physically, but the truth was that Saul had been dead in his relationship to the Lord for a very long time, all because he refused to repent and turn to the Lord. Can I ask us a few pointed questions this morning? Question number one, are you a follower of God and Jesus Christ? Are you a good soldier of your creator? Are you one who would give your life to, give your life to the one who gave his life for you and appointed you and equipped you to love him and to serve him? Or have you gone your own way like Saul, wandered off, disregarding your God? God's been so gracious. He's so good and he's given us so many advantages and opportunities to live with him and for him now and forever. But God's goodness and his grace are going to be wasted if we don't humble ourselves and come to him in humble faith, believing in him and his word and trusting ourselves to follow his ways, his commandment and his commandments. God's grace is given to the whole world and Saul experienced that grace. He, grace. he had God's truth. He had God's daily provision. He the Spirit of God worked in and around Saul. God's people gave testimony to God's transforming power. And, and we have that same, those same benefits. But if we refuse to believe or follow the Lord, all those, all those advantages of God's grace will mean nothing. Instead of receiving God's mercy, we'll receive God's condemnation for not turning because we have not turned to Jesus Christ. There's a very familiar passage that many of you know in the New Testament. In John chapter 3, we read very familiar verses, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Verse 16 gives us that great, wonderful truth. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And when we believe that that's true, we, be, we are given new life, eternal life with God. Verse 17 explains why Jesus came, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He came to rescue us from our sins so that we could be in God's presence forever and enjoy him. And then verse 18 explains there's two responses. We can believe and receive life, or we can be condemned by not believing. Have you believed? Will you believe? I encourage you to do that today. Question number two, a second question. Am I leading God's people forwards or backwards? We're not King Saul, but we are students. We are siblings. We are friends. We're husbands. We're wives. We're mothers and fathers. We're co-workers. We are neighbors. And whatever our station is in life, God has put us here to love him and to enjoy him and then to love and to serve other people and to lead them to God. Wherever we are, wherever we go, we're here to guide them to know God. So I would just encourage you on this day when we celebrate eternal life because Jesus is alive, don't take your calling in life lightly. Pursue God with all your heart and your mind and, and find out what he wants you to do and do it out of love and gratitude because of all that he's done and given you through Christ. In chapter 31, it just all comes together. The great difference is faith in God. Old Testament history books like Samuel are never just simple history. God's history always has to do with uh, the vertical relationship between people and their God. God focuses on that because that relationship affects every horizontal relationship we have with people to people. So in God's eyes, success, fruitfulness, a good life is lived in a right relationship with God. My vertical relationship with God is what God focuses on in his history books. And we learn the benefits of walking with God in faith. And we see the consequences, the negative effects of ignoring God and not being in a good relationship with our God and creator. People who fail in their vertical relationship with God are, always, are being compared to those who do trust God. And we've seen that in, in 1 Samuel with Hophni and Phinehas compared to uh, Samuel. And Saul, King Saul and David were compared. And Nabal and Abigail are just a few examples of the difference between people without faith and the outcome of those who had faith with God. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. We looked at it in Luke chapter 12. Jesus mentions the rich fool. And it's an important parable to be reminded of. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Wow. 
Here was a Fortune 500 businessman that was successful in this life. But God's history says, don't act like this man. Don't follow his example. Don't imitate him because he is a fool. Why? Because he had no vertical relationship with God. He was not rich toward God. He was rich toward himself. He was successful in this world, but his life in God's eyes was a failure. There was another rich man we meet in Luke just a few pages over in chapter 19. His name was Zacchaeus. He was rich too because he, he stole, he took what wasn't his own. He was successful in this world, but he was not rich toward God. His relationship with God, his vertical relationship was non-existent. But Zacchaeus turned in humble faith to Jesus Christ. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down. But Zacchaeus then in his house stood up and said, Lord, look, here and now I have given half of my, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. A great story. Zacchaeus turned in humble belief, and his life was changed. From that very moment when he turned to faith in Christ, his never-ending life began. And his changed behavior, his changed attitude showed that he was truly believing and going to follow Christ. People of faith, all of us fall short of God's glory. Never compare yourself to other people. <laughs> Don't compare yourself to me because you might look pretty, pretty holy. <laughs> compare yourself to Christ. We are all sinners. We're unholy. We all fall short of God's glory, but Jesus came to rescue us. Chapter 31 of 1 Samuel reminds us the sad story that we can have confidence in our God when we trust in him. Be confident of this. God will justly judge Saul's eternal future. We can trust that. But when you consider facing God's judgment, let it drive you to faith or to renew your faith that's maybe grown a little stale. Again, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel ends in sadness, but there's a little glimmer of hope because of King David, who's still alive, chosen by God, taken care of, and ready to follow God faithfully. There's hope because he was a man after God's own heart. And David is just a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the everlasting King, the appointed Savior, the Messiah, the Son of David. So let's turn to Luke chapter uh, 24 and read a few verses. I'd like to start just before chapter 24 and in, in chapter 23. Jesus is, uh, has died and Joseph of Arimathea comes and it says in Luke chapter 23, verse 50, that he was a good man and had not consented to their decision and action to kill Jesus. And he came from Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. And it was a preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. 
The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. What a sad day, that Good Friday, when they buried Jesus. Wicked people had put that appointed deliverer, the Savior, to death. They abused his body. They mocked and scorned him. They crucified him, thinking he was saying he was cursed by God. They put Jesus' body out on display in that cross for shameful, on shameful display because they despised him. But they didn't know how foolish they were. They were leading people away from God, not to God. By hating Christ, they were hating the very God they say they loved. And people of faith like those women were so sad. There was weeping in the night. I can imagine the weeping that happened on Friday night. I can imagine that the, that Sabbath, that Saturday, when they were to worship, when they were to celebrate the Passover and all that God had done to deliver Israel from Egypt years before, I don't know how much worship I would have been doing that day on Saturday. I would have been wondering what God was up to. God, what are you doing? It's so uncertain, the future. What is going to happen to us? They fled in fear. They scattered. They hid because they didn't know what was ahead. Weeping in the night. But then we read in chapter 24 the good news, the triumphant news. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men of, in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. <laughs> you know, the women's expectations on that morning were not very high. They expected to find a tomb. They were looking for someone to open that tomb. They were expecting to put spices on the dead body of Jesus to honor him. But then the truth came out. <laughs> the tomb was open. The tomb was not only open, the stone was rolled away, but it was empty. And the angels, I love what the angels said, why do you seek the living among the dead? <laughs> when holy angels speak, listen, <laughs> pay attention. And I have to say, if I hadn't seen those angels, if I hadn't seen the empty tomb like those women did and been witnesses of it, 
when they came back to the upper room and reported that Jesus wasn't there, that the angels said he was alive, that he was risen, I would have thought it was a wishful thinking, that they had a vision, that they were dreaming that it was an idle tale, that it was nonsense. I mean, they all knew that Jesus was dead. How could he be alive? But the women weren't dreaming. The women weren't just making it up. They didn't expect to find, they expected to find Jesus there. And when they didn't, the truth came out. Believers, followers of Christ, this is your triumphant day. Not because of anything you've done, but because of all that Jesus Christ has done. His death on the cross has paid for the world's sins. Ample enough to cover all the sins of the world. He was buried, as the scriptures tell us. He was raised to life, as the scriptures tell us. His resurrection proves that Jesus' death has covered our sins, that God the Father satisfied with his sacrifice for our sins. The debt is paid in full. What a triumphant day. Hear these words. Isaiah wrote, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who is raised to life, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. That's true for you, believer in Christ today. Christ is interceding for us. He's the risen Savior. So when the perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's gone. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if you've believed in Christ, these promises are yours. And how are we going to respond to this? Be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because we know our labor is not in vain. Jesus' victory over death empowers you and me to follow in his ways, to have our attitudes change, to let our attitudes change our actions, and to follow Christ wholly in better ways. Jesus' life was not a waste. On Friday night and Saturday, it seemed like all that he taught and did was gone. He was killed as a criminal, but God's sovereign plan raised him up in, to glory and triumph, and all who believe in him will share in that as well. What a hopeful day it is. Unless Jesus returns soon, all of our stories are going to end in a cemetery. But there's hope, even in a cemetery. Death and the grave are reminders that we're living under a curse. The wages of sin is death. But the empty tune reminds us that Jesus Christ is alive, and those who believe in him will be alive too. There's no need to have our stories end the way in sadness and uncertainty 
the way King Saul's life ended. King David lived and sinned and died too, but David died in peace. And what was the difference? David was a man of faith who entrusted himself to God. Funerals and caskets and urns and cemeteries are really humbling places. As a pastor, I've learned through the years a lot about life there. When faith in Jesus Christ is absent or faith in Christ is not certain, there's a restlessness. There's no peace or comfort for those who are left behind. But when there is confidence, when there was faith, when there was a life that showed that they believed and trusted in Christ, there's a peace and there's a hope, even in a cemetery, because there's faith in a risen Savior. We need to take our cue from Jesus when we're in a cemetery, when we are facing death in uncertain times. Jesus wept at Lazarus's tomb. Mary and Martha wept and their friends wept. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That Jesus is the resurrected Christ, the Savior. He has power over death. I have nothing to fear in him. Disciples of Christ, even when life leads us to a cemetery, there's a bright future waiting for all those who trust in Christ to live in glory with him in peace and eternal joy. I hope that's your hope this morning. Think about it and reflect on it, what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. You died for our sins. You were buried on the third day you rose again from the dead. You are the risen Savior. Oh Lord, we have no one else to turn to for hope, for life everlasting, for peace and joy. We look to you alone and we praise you and thank you and we worship you only because you are the risen Lord. Amen. Hear these hopeful words, but thanks be to God. He gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you, for you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I hope you have, even in these days, a very happy Easter. And why is it happy? Because Jesus is risen, and all who trust in him will be risen too one day and join him. That's our secure hope because of our risen Savior. Have a great, glorious, happy Easter. Amen.